0: Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another.
1: So there's this scene in a book that I read when I was a kid that I haven't been able to shake now. I'm 40 years old, still fresh in my memory. It's this book about a boy who his dream in life is to get these two hunting dogs and to use them to hunt raccoons. It's hilarious that I remember this because I don't know anything about hunting or dogs or raccoons or really going outside. So uh, it's amazing that this sticks in my head. Uh, But he wanted to get these dogs, that was his dream. And at one point in the book, he, he gets the dogs and now he's gonna teach them how to hunt raccoons. And to do that, he has to get A raccoon skin and so his grandfather tells him that if you want to catch a raccoon to, to get the skin to teach your dogs how to hunt it's really not that hard this is what you do you go out into the woods and you find a log and you drill a hole in the log and the hole is 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 just big enough that a raccoon if he flattens his hand can get his hand down into the hole in the log but it's just small enough that if his hand is in a fist He can't get it out. And then Grandpa said, this is what you do. You take a quarter and you polish it to where it's as shiny as it can be and you drop it down into the hole. And raccoons, being curious and mischievous creatures when they're walking through the woods, will see the shine of the quarter. And that raccoon will want that quarter, so he'll flatten his hand, he'll reach down into the log, and he'll grab the quarter. But then when he does that, uh, he can't get out. His hand's a fist, he he can't get out of the hole. And the raccoons are also stubborn creatures, so he will stay there all night, refusing to give up the coin, all the way up into the morning, when they walk up to the raccoon and kill it. And that story has stuck out to me, because my first question is, what's a raccoon gonna do with a quarter, (laughs) right? Why does he want that quarter? It's not like he can go into a convenience store, flip it on the counter and say, I'll take some gum. And even if he can, he hasn't heard of inflation, so that's not going to work, right? But the other reason it stands out to me as I get older is I realize that that's a really good metaphor because what, what kills the raccoon in the end is actually not curiosity, and it isn't even stubbornness, and it isn't even the hunter. You know what kills that raccoon in the end is self-confidence. That raccoon is so sure that he knows exactly what he wants. He's so sure that he knows exactly what is best for him, what will lead to the best life. He's so committed to that, he will literally go to his grave, believing in his own ability to get himself through life. That's actually what this passage is about in Galatians 5, that kind of self-confidence and the destructive nature of it. So if you have a Bible, would you take it out and open it to Galatians chapter 5? We're going to begin in verse 16 through the end of the chapter. If you have a phone or a tablet, pull that out. Um, If you don't have a Bible and you don't know your way around the Bible, one or both of those, then we make them available to you. They're in the pew in front of you here in the West Service or over in the East Service. They're in the back of the room, and today's reading is on page 980 and 16. So you just have to grab one of these and turn to that page number. As you are getting there, uh, let me hold out to you the three points I'm going to use by way of an outline. Three points, very simple. They go like this. I want to tell you that the Christian life is a fight. Winning matters and how to win. The Christian life is a fight. Winning matters and how to win. Let's start with the first one, the Christian life is a fight. In this passage, you probably noticed when it was being read, you might be noticing it even now as you look at it. In this passage, the writer is telling us that there are two things that are diametrically opposed to each other, two ways of living that are in conflict. He calls them the spirit and the flesh. And if we don't understand those words and what he means by them, this is not going to be an easy passage for us to make sense of. So let me pause just for a second and give you a definition of what he means when he says spirit and flesh. First, spirit. The word spirit here is a reference to the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God in three persons. And the what, the work of the Holy Spirit in the economy of God's kingdom is to lead God's people in living the life that he would have them to live. Jesus says in the Gospel of John uh, chapter 14 that he is ascending into heaven. But when he's gone, the Holy Spirit will come and he will guide us and teach us and help us to remember what Jesus would have us do. So the Holy Spirit is is what God uh, is when God is leading the church and leading His people in a particular direction to live a particular way. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. So when the writer says the Spirit here, he has in mind a life of submission and surrender to the authority of God that living in the Spirit, walking in the Spirit, is a life of surrender to and submission to the authority of God. And and therefore, then, the flesh which is the opposite of that, or in contrast to that, is actually not the physical. The writer isn't saying that physical things are bad and spiritual things are good, that the physical universe, your physical body are bad. That's not what he means. If the spirit is is meant to describe a life of living in authority to God through his Holy Spirit, then the flesh is a life lived in self-reliance, self-confidence, self-authority, To live in the flesh is to listen to yourself. It's to live on autopilot. It's to do things your way according to your own wisdom. And so the contrast here are there are two ways of living. Life in the spirit, surrendering to and submission to the will of God. Or life in the flesh, living in surrender to your own wisdom. And what the writer is saying is that inside every Christian is both. After all, before we met Jesus, we were living a life of surrender to ourselves. We, we were following our own wisdom, deciding for ourselves what is good and bad, right and wrong. And then we come to faith in Jesus, and what happens is we become willing and wanting to live in submission to him and surrender to him. And every day is a fight, which one are we going to do? Let me give you a metaphor that will maybe drive this home. Uh, I always say when I'm teaching the Exploring Marriage class here with my wife, Amy, that's our class for people that are uh, considering marriage, I always say that the first year of marriage will show you how selfish you are. And if you don't think that's true and you're married, then that just means you're still selfish. Selfish. The first year of marriage will show you how selfish you are. And the reason for that is simple. Before you got married, you lived life on your own. You could do what you wanted. You could watch college football all weekend, hypothetically. You didn't have to eat vegetables. You were a grown man, Zach. You could do what you wanted. Then you got married, and all of a sudden, you're apple picking on the weekend. And your plate is full of green things, right? And so what happens in that first year of marriage is that there are two Zachs. There's the old Zach, the Zach who was used to one way of living, doing his own thing, who still kind of wishes that his weekends were up to him. And then there's the new Zach, who has found something in his wife Amy that is so beautiful and so compelling that he knows going her way is going to lead to a better life, but, but every day in that first year of marriage, and let's be honest, every other day since, is a struggle, which Zach is going to win out. And the same is true for the Christian life. That every day I'm deciding who I'm going to listen to. Will today be a day of surrender and submission? Will I live in the Spirit? Or will today be a day of self-reliance and self-governance? Will I live in the flesh? And sometimes it's not day-to-day, it's minute-by-minute, hour-by-hour, scene-by-scene. Now, you might think I'm being dramatic. You might say, oh, you know, Zach, I don't know if if I would use the word a fight. It's a fight. Well, let me read a different passage from the book of Romans that the same guy who wrote this wrote. And this is how he describes it. This is from Romans chapter 7. Just listen to what he says. He says this, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. I mean that's the guy who wrote this passage. And he's saying there's a war going on in me all the time because the Christian life is a fight. And I just want to say by way of encouragement, if you're feeling that and you think that's evidence that you are not a very good Christian, consider that that what I just read was read, was written by the guy who wrote most of the New Testament. The Christian life is a Fight, But I want you to see, second, that winning matters. And the reason why I say that is because uh, I know that the fight metaphor might resonate with some of us more than others. If you're super competitive and aggressive and I tell you that the Christian life is a fight, you might say, bring it. But if you're more mature, you might say, I just don't know if I resonate with that. When the bully picked on you on the playground, you did the right thing and walked away. And so as a consequence, you may think, well, I, I don't wanna fight, but, but let me give you three reasons why winning the fight matters, why fighting matters. Here's the first one. And I'm just gonna admit it right up front. It's shocking, okay, but, but I want you to just hear it in the spirit, it's delivered, it's for you. The absence of fighting, is a reason to wonder if you're a Christian at all. The absence of fighting is a reason to wonder if you're a Christian at all. Imagine now 18 years into marriage if you were to ask my wife Amy, hey, how have you seen Zach change since you married him? How have you seen 18 years of marriage affect him? And she were to say, I haven't. It doesn't. That would make you wonder about the health of our relationship. Well, the writer here in Galatians 5 says that there's a long list of things the flesh will lead us to do. We're going to look at that list in a minute. But I want you to see what he says right after the list. You can find it in Galatians 5, verse 21. This is what he says. At the very end, after the list, he says, I warn you, as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, he doesn't mean if you do a single thing on this list, you can forget a relationship with God. If you're guilty of anything on this list, you can forget heaven. He doesn't mean that, and we know that for two reasons. Number one, read the list. There's not a single person in this room that isn't guilty of one or more, including the guy holding the microphone. This is a list that's impossible not to be guilty of. But the second thing is we know he said himself he fights every day doing the things he doesn't wanna do and not doing the things he wants to do. What he has in mind here isn't even losing the fight. What he has in mind here is that if our life is marked by self-reliance and self-governance and autonomy, if we live with only with reference to ourselves day in and day out, if we live a life in the flesh, if for us, God is nothing more than what we hear about on Sunday morning, but no effect on how we live, then we should wonder why we are calling ourselves Christians, and we should wonder whether or not we'll be included in the kingdom that God is building. So I don't know what's true of your life. I don't know if the presence of fighting is there, but if it isn't, I want to encourage you to ask yourself, what does it mean then that I'm living the Christian life? Why isn't my Christian life more like the one being described here? But the second reason why winning matters is because losing is what's breaking our world. Losing this fight is what's breaking our world. Here's what I mean by that. Look with me at the list here in this passage. It begins in verse 19. He says this, now the works of the flesh, and again, what we should have in mind here is when we listen to ourselves, when we rely on ourselves, These are the kind of things we get into. He says, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions. Now I'm just describing the holidays. (laughs) Divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Listen, I just want to say, If you haven't been to church in a while, I can just visualize you wincing right now and going, man, this is why I stopped going in the first place. I'm back one Sunday and here's a list of all the things that I can't do. Because that's all the Bible is, is one big list of things I can't do. Listen, if you're reading this list, that way you've got it all wrong. You've got it all wrong. Let me give you uh, uh, just a made-up story that will illustrate this. I have five kids. My fourth kid is my son Graham. I'm going to use him in this story because he's like the sweetest human being ever. So this would never be true of him. Some of my other kids, it might be. Okay, it's a little too close to home. So, so I want you to imagine first day of, of first grade this year that I walk Graham into his classroom. And I meet his teacher and she comes over and she says, Oh, Graham, Mr. Wyrock, I'm so glad to meet you. We're going to have a great year in first grade. I just need you to know one thing. There's one rule in our class and that is no bullying. And I want you to imagine that in that moment, Graham said, What? Oh, I can't do anything. Right? I would wonder in that moment if he was a sociopath. Because the rule against bullying isn't about limiting or inhibiting Graham right? It's about creating a safe environment for his classmates. This list isn't about limiting and inhibiting you. This list is a list of things that we do when we rely on ourselves that hurt other people. Sexual immorality, sensuality, impurity. You say, well, well, how does that hurt anyone? You ever been in a marriage or around a marriage where there's adultery? It's one of the most painful things a person can go through. You you think pornography doesn't hurt people? I mean, we know it's linked to human trafficking, sex trafficking, to drug abuse. I'm raising daughters in a world in which most guys their age have been looking at pornography for years. You don't think that makes the world a little less safe for young women? Envy, slander, you ever been lied about? drunkenness? Did you grow up in a home with an alcoholic parent? See, this is not about inhibiting you and limiting you. What the writer is saying is that when we live according to the wisdom that makes sense to us, we hurt ourselves and we hurt other people. We participate in the destruction of our world. We are the problem with our world. You and I, Listening to ourselves, relying on our own wisdom, believing that we know what's best for us. We are like raccoons holding on to a quarter while our brains get beat in, wondering who's what's wrong with the world. You might think I'm being hyperbolic, but consider this for a second. A broken world comes from broken communities, correct? Broken communities come from broken families, correct? Broken families come from broken mom and dad. And that's why you need to hear me, Dad, your pornography viewing is destroying your family. You and I and the way we talk about each other is destroying our community. And broken communities are what's destroying our world. You see, the writer is telling us that that we have to fight because losing is what is destroying our world. Living in a way that makes sense to us, trusting our own wisdom, trusting our own understanding, that self-confidence is killing us just like it killed that raccoon. Here's the third reason why winning matters. If losing is what's breaking our world, winning is what we'll put it back together. Because the writer gives us a second list. He says the works of the flesh, when we listen to ourselves, this is what we become. But then he says the fruit of the Spirit, when we listen to God, when we go to God for his authority, his wisdom, his definition of right and wrong, of good and bad, of helpful and unhelpful, this is the list we get in response. Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You see, I want you to see that it's not just a list of wonderful things. This list is exactly what is needed to fix the world broken by the first list. In a society that is being destroyed by sexual appetites, self-control is what will put it back together. In a culture of constant arguing and bickering, gentleness and patience are what will put it back together. You see, what the writer is telling us is that the Christian life, it matters if we win because our families are either being destroyed or restored. Our lives are either being destroyed or restored. Our communities are either being destroyed or restored. Our world is either being destroyed or restored. And the, and the math behind it is pretty simple. If we listen to ourselves, destruction. If we listen to Jesus, restoration. Listen, if you don't believe me, consider this. When is the time in your life that you have most hurt other people? You know the story you're thinking of. Whose wisdom got you there? We have got to stop believing that the problems with our world are out there or those people. The problems with our world, this passage is telling us, are Christians not listening to God. So that leads me to my third point, which is to say, well, how do we win then? How do we win? Well, I'll tell you what it isn't. It can't be that we walk out of here saying, fine, I'll just go out of here and I'll go, be kind, be kind, be kind, be gentle, be gentle, be gentle. (laughs) Sometimes at work, I go to meetings and I think, I'm not gonna talk in this meeting. (laughs) And I go to the meeting, I'm not gonna talk, I'm not gonna talk, I'm not gonna talk. And then at the end of the meeting, I'm like, I'm the worst, I'm the worst, I'm the worst. (laughs) That's that's not how we change. You know that because you've tried that. And you know why? All that is is religious self-reliance. It's just you leaning on you just in a religious direction. But instead, the writer here calls us to three things that will actually lead to us winning this fight. So if you're like me and you're feeling the heaviness of the way you are participating in the destruction of your life and your family and your community and the world, lean into these, things, these three things. Here they are, number one, you have to change our perspective. We have to change our perspective. I, I love how the writer takes subtle jabs at me in this passage. Verse 24, he says it this way, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Why does he use that verb, crucified? It's not by accident, of course. He's referencing Jesus, Jesus who was crucified. You see, the cross of Jesus constantly reminds me of two things. The ugliness of the world that comes from me listening to me. That's the first thing. Because after all, Jesus Christ has to die on the cross because of my sin, because of all the things that I thought were good, but were actually bad, that I thought were wise, that were actually foolish. All the times and ways I've hurt other people, I've affected other people, he had to die for that. That if I had any hope of relationship with God, my my sin, my guilt, my shame had to be dealt with and so he had to take it upon himself. Jesus dying on the cross is a constant, consistent reminder of the ugliness of my sin. But more than that, in the words of Peter in Acts 2, it boils down to this simple concept. God sent his own son and we murdered him. That made sense to us. But thankfully, the cross of Jesus is not just a constant reminder of the, of the lunacy of listening to me, but it is a constant reminder of just how deep God's grace and love and mercy go, that as broken as my listening to me has made my life and my world, Jesus and the love of God in Jesus was willing to go just as deep. You see, the cross is a reminder not just of how ridiculous it is to listen to me, but the cross is a reminder of the beauty and love and mercy and kindness and grace of God. The cross asks me this question every day. Why would you listen to you and why wouldn't you listen to him? That's why we sing the cross, pray the cross, preach the cross. It's why we'll do it every week until you die or I die, and then other people will come and they'll do it here too. The reason why is because we need to constantly be reminded that what's destroying our world is us. And what will put it back together is Jesus. That's the perspective. But the second thing is that perspective needs to lead to a posture. It needs to lead to a posture. What is that posture? Okay, Jesus... The absolute worst thing I could do is listen to me. What do you want to do? You can't miss this. In the very beginning of this passage, he says, verse 16, walk by the Spirit. And you think it's a call to action, and it is a call to action. But you can't understand verse 16 without connecting it to verse 24, where he says this. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So yeah, you're walking, but who's leading? We're walking, but who decides where we go? We're walking, but who decides how we get there? It's God. The Christian life is a life of asking God, of seeking God, of listening to God. God, before I met you in Jesus, I was doing things my way, and that was so devastating and so awful that it sent me looking for something better, and I found that in you. So the absolute worst thing for me would, to go back, would be to go back to listening to me. What is it you want? Christians are those who recognize their incredible depravity apart from God and the incredible beauty and kindness and richness of mercy in God and as a result take a posture of being led. If being a Christian means anything, it means knowing that you shouldn't be in charge of you. It's a posture before you take any action. It's a posture. And the way you know this is to go back to my analogy about marriage. If you said to me, well, Zach, you make singleness sound so great. Don't you wanna go back to to college football and no vegetables? And the answer is no. Why? Because I've found something better than that life. I'm still like a little football every now and then, but (laughs) found something better. And the same is true of every Christian. That was the brokenness of a life lived and reliance on ourselves that drove us to Christ in the first place, was it not? So why would we ever go back? Why would we not take a posture of Jesus, whatever you have for me is what I want? And that's the third way we win, which is we adopt the practice of seeking the leadership of Jesus Christ. And that's every day. That's every day, listen, listen, fathers, mothers, you wanna shape your family? Seek the leadership of Jesus in all things. I'm telling you, we are living life on autopilot. You know it and I know it. Every time I get together with a friend, it's like the first five minutes is a contest to see who's been busier. And I always make sure I win. Because the busier I am, the more excuses I have. But listen, living life on autopilot is just a fancy way of living life in the flesh. Because autopilot means I'm in control. Which means the practice is disruption. It's disruption. The morning, the afternoon, the evening, it's finding opportunities to shake myself out of autopilot and into intentionality, out of ignoring God and into listening, out of obeying myself and into obeying God. Listen, if you want to see restoration in your family this holiday season, stop doing the things that make sense to you. Start seeking the leadership of Jesus. He puts things back together. It's what he does. This is the path forward to changing our world. And I know you think that's crazy, and I know you think that's an exaggeration, but the same logic we use to go down goes up. If you and I can be restored, then our families can be restored. And if our families can be restored, then our communities can be restored. And if our communities can be restored, then our world can be restored. Stop listening to the loudest voice telling you how to rely on yourself or rely on others. Disrupt that and seek the voice of Jesus instead in order that you and I might live lives with the fruit of the Spirit and that we and our world might be put back together. Let me pray for us. Father God, Autopilot is a great description for it because we, we, we don't set out to do it. You just blink and a week goes by. So we ask for all the gifts you can pour out on us. Conviction, hope, discipline, commitment, accountability, community, that you would just pour out all your blessings on this church that we might become people who gradually over time say no to the flesh and yes to the spirit. Put us back together. Put our families and our communities back together. Make us agents of putting the world back together. Nothing is too great for you. If the dead can rise, so too can our culture. We ask all this in the name of Jesus, amen.